Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stonecatchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. My name is Jeff, and whether you're joining through YouTube or the podcast, I'm glad you're here. This week, we're continuing our Come, Follow Me study in Matthew chapters 19 and 20, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 18. Now, a lot of the events and parables in these chapters are consistent between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll stick mostly to the text of Matthew, but of course note some key differences between what Mark and Luke record for those same events and parables. And then we'll also note a few additional things in Luke chapter 18 that are not in the other chapters we're covering in Matthew and Mark. So, with that, let's dive right into Matthew chapter 19. This chapter kicks off with what I think has become kind of a central verse surrounding the sanctity of marriage for our church and others who look at marriage between a man and a woman as sort of the ideal to strive for in this life. But we're going to take a slightly different approach, look at it in context, and note some additional things that Jesus says that I think we often look over. So in Matthew chapter 19, what happens is Jesus goes to the coast of Judea, and there it says in verse 2, great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Then what happens is in verse 3, it says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So, this is the question that prompts the answer that Jesus will give. And that question is, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife or to divorce his wife for any cause? At the time, there were some competing schools of thought as far as when it was appropriate to quote-unquote put your wife away or essentially to get a divorce. And so they're approaching Jesus and trying to trap him to see what his response to this question will be. His initial response is, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So this is the initial response that he gives. If they've been joined together, then they shouldn't come apart. I do want to pause really quickly here and note that I think the world that we live in today is much different than the world 2,000 years ago. I recognize that sometimes couples determine either together or one party in that couple that a divorce is the best way forward. In some situations, maybe even many situations, the correct answer, the best answer for all parties involved is for a couple to be divorced. So I don't want anything that I say in this podcast to give any other idea. We'll look at what's in the scriptures, but I just want to make it clear at the outset that my intention is definitely not to condemn or come at anybody who has been divorced or feels like divorce is the best option in their current situation, and that should never be any of our intentions. Life is complicated, and we just need to be there to love people no matter what they're going through. So please don't take anything that we talk about in this podcast as a judgment on divorce. That's not my intention. If you go back to the scriptures, these people Jesus is talking to then respond, well, if that's the rule, why did Moses say that we could give a writing of a divorcement and put our wife away? Jesus responds with something that is interesting to think about with other laws we may have received as part of the Hebrew Bible or anywhere else. What he says is, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So he essentially says, because the people at that time just couldn't do anything better, this is the law that was given. It doesn't mean that it's right, it just means that that's what was done. 
And as I think about that answer that Jesus gives to this specific question, it really makes me think about other things contained in the scriptures or even other things that we have read into them. Jesus is saying here that this law given by Moses was only given because of the quote-unquote hardness of the people's hearts. I wonder how many other laws are like that in the scriptures. I'm not here to speculate. I'm just saying that's a really interesting response from Jesus to this question where the Pharisees present to him a law that was given from Moses and he essentially says that was only the law because of the hardness of the hearts of the people at that time. And then he goes on to say in verse 9 that essentially the only potentially acceptable reason for getting a divorce is sexual sin. And then he even says that if you marry somebody who was divorced, you are committing adultery. Now, I don't claim to fully understand exactly what's going on there. I know that when I was a kid, I found this teaching really troubling because I had some people in my extended family who had been divorced and then remarried, and I thought that somehow this scripture was condemning what I viewed as a really wonderful thing, and I just didn't understand it. I still don't, but what I can say is that I do think marriage and divorce was a lot different back then. I think that it was essentially all up to the man. Unfortunately, 2,000 years ago, I don't think women had a whole lot of say as far as whether they got married or whether they got divorced. And so I can imagine a scenario where men could potentially just unilaterally decide for whatever reason, whether it's a good reason or no reason at all, to just abandon their wife, give them a writing of divorcement, as it says Moses told them they could in the law, and then leave them to their own devices, which at that, in that day and age, would really leave that woman destitute. I would think that what these verses are getting at is, men, you have made this commitment. You can't just decide one day that you don't want to honor this commitment that you've made anymore, write a piece of paper that says we're divorced, and then abandon this person. So all of that to say, I do think it was very different back then than it is now. And I personally don't think that these verses should ever be used to condemn somebody who feels that divorce is the best path forward for them in their situation. What we need to do is listen and love and support those people who are going through something difficult. Now, before we move on from this, I think it's important to know what he says in the next verses. And this part, I think, is only in Matthew. I don't think it was in Mark or Luke. What it says in verse 10, his, his disciples essentially say, well, if that's the case, then wouldn't it be better to just never get married at all? And Jesus says to them, all men cannot receive this saying, save, save they to whom it is given. An interesting side note there from Jesus that it sounds like essentially what he's saying is, you're right, this is hard, so we shouldn't expect everybody to get married because this is a hard saying. He's saying, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. And then verse 12 is really interesting. He says, for there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. The reason I find verse 12 so interesting is because Jesus right here, right after his teaching about marriage, he then says this saying, this teaching, potentially referring to marriage, isn't for everybody. And then he acknowledges the fact that there exists in the world sexual minorities. Eunuchs are something that we encounter every so often in reading the New Testament. I think the most common understanding of that word is 
a young man who was castrated at birth or very early on so that they could then take on political roles or responsibilities without kings or rulers being afraid that this individual would pass that role on to their children because they could no longer have children. And they were often appointed to oversee the treasury and they felt like if they appointed a eunuch, then they wouldn't really have any motivations to betray the king or the ruler because there wouldn't be any sort of family or romantic relationships or anything like that. So that's the most common understanding of eunuchs as we read them in the New Testament, young men who were castrated at birth or very early on. But the very first group that Jesus mentions in this verse is eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb. So he acknowledges that it's not always just simply men and women and so thereby not everybody is going to be married in the fashion that he just indicated and remember that information he gave was only in response to a question about divorce often we take this teaching as some sort of prescription that everybody should get married but i feel like what jesus says in verses 10 11 and 12 sort of refute that now that doesn't of course doesn't mean that marriage is bad and that if that's something that we want we shouldn't strive for it but what i do think we need to realize is that i don't think these verses are definitive of the only way to lead a life of discipleship being the end goal of marriage and i know that that's a perspective that is a little bit odd within our church because marriage is so important it's really looked at as kind of the culmination of life experience is marriage and having a family. And as somebody who is married and does have a family, it is fantastic. But what Jesus is saying here, I don't think is everybody has to get married. In fact, he's just answering a question about when it's appropriate to get a divorce if you already are married. And then he very specifically says that this teaching isn't for everybody and then acknowledges that there are in the world sexual minorities, eunuchs who are that way from birth, eunuchs who are made that way by other men, and then it says eunuchs who made themselves that way for the kingdom of God's sake or for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And that likely just refers to men who choose to be celibate, which we know is something that still happens in other churches. And Jesus acknowledges, or at least sounds like to me, acknowledges that this is, that this can be a good way to live your life because what he said before about getting married might not work for everybody. And I think that is a beautiful teaching because not everybody in this world does get married for whatever reason. So as a quick summary, I don't think we should use these verses about marriage between a man and woman to be a description of the only way to lead a happy or Christ-centered life. He's answering a question about divorce and then his apostles say, well, then Maybe people should just never get married. And he says, yeah, that might not work for everybody. And we need to acknowledge that there are sexual minorities in the world. And all of those individuals, Jesus Christ calls to come unto him, to be his disciples and to be part of his kingdom. In fact, he says at the end of verse 12, sometimes they do it for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So some interesting things to note about these verses that are sometimes used to very narrowly define the culmination of life experience as marriage between a man and a woman. All right, in the next few verses, in all three of these, in all three of the Gospels, it talks about there being some little children or infants that wanted to come to Jesus Christ, and those that were in the crowd rebuked them, or it even says his disciples 
rebuked these children and didn't want them to come to see Jesus. We probably know this story well because it's so beautiful. Jesus says in verse 14, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. We need to ensure that we are not forbidding any children, no matter what their personal identifiers are, from coming to Jesus Christ. He wants them to come to him. He wants a relationship with them. He wants to lay his hands on them and bless them. And that is beautiful. The next thing we'll talk about is the story of the rich young ruler. Now, unfortunately, this young man sometimes gets a bad rap because of what we perceive to be his response to the teaching of Jesus. He's often remembered for not being willing to sell all of his possessions and then follow Jesus Christ. But really, have any of us done that? No, clearly not, because you're either watching this on a computer or listening to it on a phone, which means none of us have sold everything that we have to give it to the poor. So we can't really come at this guy, and I think there's a lot more lessons to be had in the conversation leading up to that final decision. So let's talk about those verses. In Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16, it says, One came to Jesus and said, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? I love when anybody asks this question of Jesus Christ because my ears definitely perk up. I want to know the answer to this question. What do I need to do to obtain eternal life? There were some other individuals who asked this same question that we talked about in a previous podcast. You may remember that in that instance, Jesus asks them what's written in the law and they say, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, that's correct. And then they respond with another question, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. That was his response. That was the conversation after the last time we read that somebody asked Jesus this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here, the young man asks Jesus that question. And rather than asking a question, he just says, if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Something that's unique to Matthew's version of this story is that the young man then asks Jesus, which, or which commandments should I keep? That's in verse 18. We know at the time that there was more than 600 commandments that have been listed that they took from scripture and that they strove to keep in their daily lives. So the young man asks Jesus, well, which commandments? And I love Jesus's response. I think it's very telling. Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder, Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, that doesn't seem very revolutionary. Those seem to be lifted directly from the Ten Commandments, right? But I think it's interesting to note the ones that Jesus includes and the ones that he does not include. If we turn to Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 20 Starting in verse 3, the very first one given is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The next one, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. The third one, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The fourth one, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So Jesus didn't mention those first four commandments. And you may have heard before that often the Ten Commandments are sort of divided in things that relate to our relationship with God and things that relate to our relationship with the other people around us. Jesus seemingly excluded all of the commandments that relate to our relationship with the divine. Somebody asks him, what commandments do I need to keep to obtain eternal life? He lists six of the ten, but only those that have to do with how we treat each other. Now, I'm not in any way saying that 
That doesn't mean our relationship with God isn't important. I just think it's interesting to know which ones he leaves out and which ones he includes. Now, if we keep going through the list, the fifth one is honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Those are five that Jesus did include. Remember in Matthew, he also included thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The 10th commandment given in Exodus was thou shalt not covet. So it could be that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself is sort of a better way of looking at this 10th commandment not to covet, or it could just be a way to sort of summarize the previous commandments that he listed. And this is the same in each of the other two accounts in Mark and Luke as well. Jesus Christ lists these five of the 10 commandments uh, in Matthew's version, it does add, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In the others, I don't think it adds that specifically. But to me, that answer from Jesus Christ is very telling. The young man literally asks Jesus, which of the commandments do I need to keep to obtain eternal life? Jesus Christ very clearly is listing commandments from the Ten Commandments, but only includes those that relate to how we treat other people. Now, just a few chapters later in Matthew, he is going to give the two great commandments, which are to love God and love your neighbor. As we've talked about on this podcast, or as I've shared on Instagram before, I believe that we love God by loving what he loves. So really, the two great commandments are just kind of one commandment, love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we do that, we are automatically showing love towards God. And that really seems to jive with what Jesus Christ is teaching right here. Which commandments do I need to keep to obtain eternal life? Well, keep the ones that help you love your neighbor as yourself. I've seen some other people share on social media thoughts along the line of believing that our heavenly parents will have all kinds of grace and mercy for those who got their theology just a little bit wrong, maybe didn't quite understand God completely or perfectly, because let's be honest, none of us really can. So rather than stressing out about getting that just right, our theological beliefs, maybe it's more important to prioritize how we treat other people. And again, that thought, that sentiment really seems to be consistent with what Jesus is sharing here. So the young man responds and says, all these things have I kept from my youth up. Apparently a very upright person. If you love your neighbor as yourself from your youth up, that's pretty impressive. Then he asks Jesus this question, what lack I yet? In some of the other accounts, Jesus simply offers, there's one thing you still lack. But in this account from Matthew, the young man asks this question, what lack I yet? Jesus tells him, if thou will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. That's the response that Jesus gives when the man asks, what lack I yet? And Jesus proceeds that sort of command or suggestion, I suppose, with a, if thou wilt be perfect. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Now you likely know how the story ends, or at least how we think that it ends. In verse 22, it says, when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. We assume from that ending that he didn't do it. We don't know, but I love when Jesus leaves these stories a little bit open-ended because I think that means we can then insert ourselves into this parable and ask ourselves, what would we do? First of all, I probably couldn't get to the point of telling Jesus, 
I've done all of those things, those five of the Ten Commandments and loving my neighbor as myself. I've done that since I was a youth until this day. What do I still need to do? I am absolutely not at that point yet. That is what I'm striving towards, but I am not at that point. If I do get there, which probably is going to happen in this life, and I go to Jesus and ask, what lack I yet? He will likely give this same answer. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. It's fascinating to me that the answer that he gives to what do I need to do to obtain eternal life has nothing to do with what we understand to be religion or church or ordinances or even covenants. The answer that he gives has everything to do with how we take care of those around us, specifically those who are less fortunate than we are. The answer to obtaining eternal life is not about theology. It's about helping our fellow children of God. That is what our religion should be about. And that is why I think in James he tells us that true religion, undefiled, is taking care of those who are less fortunate. That is what our religion should compel us to do. That is what our covenants should compel us to do. If we analyze the covenants that we have made at baptism or at other times, we will see that what we are covenanting to do is take care of those around us, to mourn with those that mourn, that comfort those that stand in need of comfort, to sacrifice things that we have to help others who need them, to consecrate what we have to those who need it more than we do. That is how we should approach covenants. Our covenants are not there to pull us closer to our heavenly parents and the celestial kingdom or heaven. Our covenants are there to remind us to look around and help the people that we encounter every single day, specifically those who are less fortunate. The answer to how to obtain eternal life, helping the people around us. Jesus then gives a teaching that you may have heard about how hard it is to get into heaven if you are rich. Presumably, this teaching is brought on because of the young man's reaction to Jesus's answer to the question he asked. He says, a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. In verse 24, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you may have heard in Sunday school lessons or seminary lessons like I did growing up that on one side of Jerusalem, there's this gate called the needle and that there was a small door that they would open up called the eye of the needle and that for a camel to be able to get through it it had to have everything all baggage all everything taken off of its back get down on its knees and then crawl through this gate and that that's what jesus is referring to here to be able to get into heaven we need to get on our knees strip off everything all of the baggage all of the riches all the wealth and then crawl through this small gate and then we'll get into heaven Unfortunately, while that's kind of a neat story, it's just not true. It doesn't mean it's a bad lesson. It just means that that can't be what Jesus is referring to. He's either speaking literally or in hyperbole, that it is as hard as a camel to go through a literal eye of a needle as it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. And that makes sense with what he has just taught this rich young ruler in that in order to be perfect, we need to be willing to give what we have to those who are less fortunate. We need to be willing to share our money, our resources, and the thing that we have been given most abundantly is grace and mercy from our heavenly parents through the healer, Jesus Christ. We need to be willing to share everything that we have with those around us. That is how we get into heaven. His disciples say, in verse 25, well then, who can possibly be saved? And Jesus responds, 
With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. All right, let's jump to Matthew chapter 20, some more great teachings in this chapter. It starts off with what's commonly referred to as the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. You may remember this story or parable. It's another great one that Jesus teaches. It starts in verse 1 where it says, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. So he goes out early, he finds some laborers, and he agrees to pay them a penny a day. That's in verse 2. And he sends them to his vineyard. It tells us that the master went out again in the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, told them, go labor in the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And they went and worked in the vineyard. Verse five, it tells us he went out again the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing, found more people, told them, go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And then in verse six, it says he went out at the 11th hour and he found others standing idle. He asks them, why do you stand here idle? And they said, nobody would hire us. And he said, go also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. Before we get to how this parable ends, I had a thought while I was reading it, I find it really unlikely that the master of the vineyard actually needed all of these laborers. He likely would have gotten all the laborers needed the first time he went, especially if there were some other people standing there in the marketplace idle, all day. Maybe he had asked them to come that first time and they just didn't listen. I don't really know. But I'm guessing the master of the vineyard likely didn't need to go back to third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. It sounds like the master of the vineyard was likely going back only to make sure that everybody would receive a wage that day. Not because he needed them. How much work could somebody perform in one hour? Not very much. The purpose of him going and calling people isn't necessarily because he needs them. It's because he wants to make sure that everybody is taken care of, that everybody has a place to go. So in verse eight, we read, so when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said, saith unto his servant, saith unto his steward, call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny. So the master tells the steward, make sure you pay the last people I brought to the vineyard first and give them a penny, which you'll remember is the exact same wage that was promised to those who he hired very early in the morning and would have worked all day. You can imagine how they would feel and we're going to read about it. In verse 10, it says, when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more and they likewise received every man a penny. Everybody got a penny. That's what the master promised those who he hired first. He didn't tell the others what he would pay them. He only told them he would pay what was right. But in verse 11, it tells us when those who were hired first received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. So they're upset because the people who came last received the amount of wage that they received. But remember, as I said a couple times already, those first laborers received exactly what they were promised. So they weren't lied to, and that's not what they could be upset about. They were only upset because the master of the vineyard had been generous and given the same amount to those who had done, in their eyes, less work. The response is in verse 13. He answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that Take that thine is, and go thy way. 
I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil, because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. This parable is powerful, and I can't help but think about how we might sometimes be like these first laborers who were hired, especially when I read verse 12. This is where they said, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Although they received exactly what they were promised, they're upset because they feel like they went through more work, more toil. They, quote unquote, bore the heat of the day. And so it's not fair that those who didn't receive the same payment. And I can see this very much being us when we get to heaven. If we feel like we have tried during our lives to do our best to cultivate a relationship with the divine, to try to follow God and Jesus Christ as best as we understand them, and we feel like we've done the things that we have been taught and learned that we need to do in order to obtain eternal life. When we get up there and we see others who have not done those things in our eyes, are we going to be upset? Are we going to say like those first hired laborers, these last have not kept whatever commandment you want to insert here, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have kept whatever commandment you want to insert here. I think there's a real danger for that to become us. We can't look at somebody and say, oh, they're not going to get to heaven because they're not doing X, Y, and Z. As the master of the vineyard tells the first hired servants in this parable, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? And I imagine our heavenly parents, Jesus Christ, saying that about their grace and their mercy. Is it not lawful or just for them to give grace and mercy to everybody, to whomever they deem that they should, which, as we read in the scriptures, is everybody, why would we want to tell our heavenly parents and Jesus Christ that they shouldn't extend mercy to somebody? Nothing has been taken away from us. We've been given the mercy that we have been promised, and we should rejoice in the fact that others have been given that mercy as well, even if we feel like if we were to look with our mortal eyes, they don't quote-unquote deserve it. We should never be in a position where we feel like we, quote unquote, deserve mercy and somebody else does not. Nobody deserves mercy. It's something that our heavenly parents extended to everybody because they love us. So let's not be like the first hired servants and decide that mercy or relationship with God or Jesus Christ doesn't apply to some people because of their situation. I think that is one of the most unchrist-like attitudes that we can have. And I think that that shows in this parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which I think might be better named the parable of the gracious master of the vineyard or something like that. We make it all about the laborers because that's us, but really it's about the grace and mercy of the master of the vineyard. That's what this parable is about. In the next verses, Jesus very clearly foretells his suffering, crucifixion, and his resurrection. He tells his disciples, The Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and then shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. We don't read that the disciples asked any questions about that, but what happens next is really interesting. In 
Mark and Luke's version, James and John come to Jesus Christ with this question, but in Matthew's version, it's actually the mother of James and John who comes to Jesus with this question. Jesus asks what they want, either in Matthew's version, talking to the mother of James and John, or in the other two Gospels, talking to James and John themselves, and says, essentially, what do you want? And the answer is, grant that these my two sons, or James and John asking themselves, may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy kingdom. So please let my sons or please let us sit at your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus's answer is not a yes or no ever, as we'll see through the rest of the verses, but what he says is, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. They responded, we are able. That's an important question for all of us to ponder. When we think about the cup that Jesus drank from, where he refers to a cup is in the Garden of Gethsemane. I would think that what he's referring to is the cup of feeling how others are feeling. The cup of bearing one another's burdens, the cup of comforting those that stand in need of comfort and mourning those that mourn, regardless of the source of their discomfort or the source of their mourning or the source of their burdens, being there not to judge the things that they may have done, but just being there to help strengthen and uplift and sit with those who are going through something difficult. Now, of course, None of us could ever do that as Jesus has, as Jesus did and does for each of us. But what he's saying is, or what I believe he's saying, is that that should really be the goal of our discipleship. The goal of our discipleship shouldn't be religious acts and ordinances, though I do believe that those can help. The goal of our discipleship is to be able to feel how others feel and then help them comfort them, lift their burdens, mourn with them. He's asking them, are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink with? And interesting that he references the baptism he is baptized with, what I mentioned before, bearing one another's burdens, comforting those that stand in comfort, mourning with those that mourn, is the covenant that we make at baptism. They say that they can do that, and he tells them that they will need to drink of that cup and that they will be baptized of that baptism he is baptized with, but that to sit on his right hand and his left, that that's something that his father will give. So he doesn't give them a yes or no, but he does tell them that they will need to be willing to drink of that same cup. Not, not in the same way that Jesus does himself as the son of God, but in a way that is possible for us as mortals to at least try to do that same thing that he has done, to know how others are feeling. And to do that, we need to listen to their stories. We need to love them. And because we can't feel exactly the way that they feel, we need to learn from them and we need to trust their lived experience. To me, that's what Jesus is getting at here when he says we need to be, we need to be willing to drink of the cup that he will drink of. Now, some of the other disciples, the other 10, it says in verse 24, are moved with indignation. They don't really like this exchange between James and John and Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to them, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. So 
you know that the way of those who don't follow me is to exercise authority and dominion over the people that they are over. But in verse 26, he teaches, But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever shall be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. There, I believe he's telling us what we need to do to enter into the kingdom of heaven. To be great, we don't make ourselves great. We don't exalt ourselves. We minister and we serve. And just like Jesus Christ did those things, even though he knew individuals wouldn't follow him, maybe wouldn't even believe him, and would even say terrible things about him. His example shows us that it is about ministering and serving even in the face of those things. He is absolutely the greatest and the chief, but he is also the minister and the servant. And that's the perfect example for us. There's a wonderful story next in Matthew that chapter 20 ends with. It's also in Mark and Luke, but a little bit different. In Matthew it says, And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. In Matthew's version, there's two people. That tends to be something Matthew does with his stories, is that there's two individuals there who need help. But in Mark's version and Luke's version, there's just one person. doesn't really matter. The rest of the story is very similar. What happens is these one or two blind people call out for mercy as they hear Jesus passing by. It's so sad what happens in verse 31, the reaction of the multitude that is with Jesus. It says, And the multitude rebuked them because they should hold their peace. So they basically tell these individuals, Leave Jesus alone. He's busy. He doesn't have time for you. Stop crying out for him. And that is heartbreaking. But these two or one person, depending on which version you read, were not to be deterred. It says, and I love this, but they cried the more, or they cried or shouted even louder. They said, have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. In Matthew's version, it says that Jesus stood still and called them unto him. In one of the other versions, I think it's Mark's, it says that at this point, some of the people went and told the blind person, be of good comfort, Jesus calls you to him. Which, to be honest, almost feels a little bit messed up to me. The fact that the people of this multitude were first rebuking them, saying, don't cry out for Jesus, he's busy, leave him alone, we're just walking through. But then as soon as Jesus stops and says, bring them to me, they then totally change their tune. They go to this, they go to this person and say, be of good comfort. He wants to see you now. They really should have been doing that all along. But in verse 32, we read that Jesus asks them, What will ye that I shall do unto you? In verse 33, they say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And Jesus performs this miracle. In verse 34, it says, So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Another wonderful healing from Jesus Christ. But what this story really brings to mind for me is, who are we? Certainly all of us need healing, and so we could relate to the blind individuals in this story. But I also think we're very often among the multitude. When we hear people crying out for Jesus Christ, or when we have people in our congregations that want to have a relationship with him, that we think are 
a little bit different, or maybe we even view as sinners because of our understanding of Scripture. What is our approach? Is our approach to make them feel unwelcome, to remind them that they are sinners and that they shouldn't be there, and maybe even tell them that certain blessings aren't available to them? Or is our approach to trust Jesus Christ, to remember and have faith that he is here to heal everybody, know that each individual is on their own individual spiritual journey, and that the best thing we can do is encourage them to cultivate that relationship side by side with us despite our differences so that they can then have that healing power in their life. We need to make sure that we are not those among the multitude who are rebuking or ignoring those who want to worship with us, even though, and I would say especially if we view them as different. Jesus is here to heal everybody not just people who live, love, or believe like we do. Let's remember that. So that's the end of Matthew chapters 19 and 20. There's one really powerful story in Luke chapter 18 that I want to make sure that we cover. Um, and it is the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Now, I think we can better refer to this parable and maybe even make it more applicable in our lives if we call it the parable of the church leader and the publican. Uh, Pharisees were the leaders of the church at the time of Jesus's ministry, but I think when we focus a lot on that term Pharisee and that they belonged to a sect of Judaism at the time, if we're not careful, that can really lead to anti-Semitism and can also be pretty offensive to our Jewish brothers and sisters. So to make this parable more applicable to us, we'll call it the parable of the religious leader and the publican. It tells us in verse 10 that two men went up into the temple to pray. So they're going to the temple to pray. It tells us in verse 11 that the religious leader stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess." That was this religious leader's prayer at the temple. In verse 13, it tells us, And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So Jesus is contrasting the prayers of these two individuals, a religious leader with a very self-righteous and judgmental prayer, and then a publican, somebody who was hated and considered unworthy and unclean and honestly a traitor and apostate to the church at that time. In fact, I know it says that the religious leader and the publican went up to the temple to pray. However, the publican wouldn't have even been allowed into the court of the Gentiles, let alone into the more inner courts where sacrifices and other things were done which is probably why it says that the publicans stood afar off. Another reason for that is that publicans were extremely hated by, by those in the community. They likely felt unsafe, even if he had been quote-unquote welcome in the court of the Gentiles or other parts of the temple. The publican might not have actually even gone there just because they didn't feel safe doing that. They knew that they were hated, and they knew that if they went in there, they would be subject to judgmental glances and it would be more difficult for them to have this worship experience. Jesus tells us in contrasting these two prayers, I tell you, this man, the publican, 
went down to his house justified rather than the other, the religious leader. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Jesus is really teaching a lot on that theme in these chapters of this week as well as last week. He's really hitting on this theme of the first shall be last and the last shall be first, or he that exalteth himself shall be abased and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And this is another example of that teaching. Another interesting thing to note about publicans is that was very much a choice for somebody to become a publican. And it doesn't tell us in these verses that this individual decided to stop being a publican. Being a publican was very much a choice. This is something that the individual could have decided to stop engaging in really at any time. Now you could say that there would be some sort of social or financial consequences to making that decision, but the fact is this individual chose to be a publican, and it doesn't tell us that he chose to stop doing this thing that made him considered unworthy and unclean, and therefore unable to go into the temple, the highest place of worship at that time. What it does say this, that is that this individual who was engaged in something that at the time was considered to be absolutely terrible, left his worship experience justified because he recognized that he was a sinner and needed God's grace. He didn't put himself above other people, either because of things that he had done or hadn't done. All he did was ask for God's mercy. But the religious leader made sure to include in his prayer all of the things that he has done and to make mention of that he is not like other men, specifically this publican. I think there's a profound lesson here for us. I think in any Christian church, and and so I'll speak to mine as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's very easy for us to look at others who are living life differently and think that their prayers are not going to be answered or that their request for mercy is not going to be granted. Whereas we as individuals who are striving to follow the commandments of our heavenly parents and to live as Jesus Christ would or as best as we understand him from the scriptures, that of course our prayers will be answered or our request for mercy will be received because we're trying to do that and we have received covenants and ordinances. And so we, as to use the words of this religious leader, are not like other men, even as this publican, choose any group of people who are currently looked down upon by society or even religion or our church. And if we're in a position where we're grateful that we're not like this insert group of people who are looked down upon, we will not leave our worship experience justified. But those who we may be hating or even excluding, as publicans were from both synagogue worship and temple worship, will leave their worship experience justified if their approach to their relationship with God does not include ideas about how they are better than other people. That is a really important lesson for each of us. And the heart of it, similar to many of the teachings and parables and stories included in these chapters, is that we should not exalt ourselves. Instead, we should humble ourselves, recognize that we are the same as 
all of the other of God's children that we share this earth with, whether we consider ourselves one of the first laborers, the third, sixth, ninth hour laborers, or even the 11th hour laborers, our heavenly parents will give all of us that which is right. And they are full of grace and mercy and love. And I believe that is what will be granted to every single one of us as we are willing and recognize that it should be granted to everybody else as well. Thank you for joining this week of Latter-day Stonecashers. Remember, your heavenly parents love you. I love you. Catch stones, don't throw them. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you haven't yet, I would greatly appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you listen to. That does such an amazing job at helping others know that they can trust this podcast as part of their Come Follow Me and gospel study. Please also feel free to share this podcast with your family and friends. The more stone catchers we can have in our congregations and classrooms, the better we'll be. Thanks again for listening.